0: At the moment, with household batteries, they're sort of an option for people who have their own house, who can afford the upfront cost, who have time to do, you know, also the willingness to do the installation, maintenance and so on. So they're just a lot of people being left out of that kind of household level storage.
1: Hi, I'm Kaya Taylor. And this is Rewired, a show exploring the future of energy in Australia, from ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Today on the show, we're talking batteries with Dr. Marnie Shaw. Marnie is a research leader in the Battery Storage and Grid Integration Program at the Australian National University. All of our research here at the
0: ANU is focused on building and designing technology for integrating as much renewable energy as we can into our future decarbonised
1: energy system. In particular, Marnie's research explores neighbourhood batteries. It's a term you may not be all that familiar with, but it could have a big impact on the way our energy network operates. Yeah, we're,
0: I think we're just settling on the terminology, um, but we have started calling them neighbourhood-scale batteries and um, that's sort of an umbrella term that includes community batteries. So to us, community batteries are those projects that are either owned by community or managed by community or somehow really involving community. And what we're seeing in the projects that are rolling out Um, They're all different models. So we thought neighbourhood scale batteries is a more general term that kind of encompasses all of the different types of projects that are rolling
1: out. Interesting. Okay, so what is a neighbourhood battery?
0: So really we're talking about scale. So this is on sort of between household scale batteries and grid scale batteries. So it's on the order of tens to hundreds of kilowatts. In terms of size and so in practice they look like something like a small if you can imagine a small shipping container that's will sit you know like in some green space in your suburb and usually we're referring to batteries that sit in front of the meter so that's another important um, distinguishing factor although there are examples that are not in front of the meter.
1: So I guess in a way, and and correct me if this is wrong, but a way of thinking about it is that when we say front of the meter in this instance, these neighborhood batteries are almost acting as if they're little mini power generation stations or, or power sources where they're sitting in our neighborhood and they can perform a lot of the functions that we would expect of a really big utility scale battery, say like the Tesla Hornsdale project, but they're happening in the neighborhood. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. There's some slight differences. They can provide some extra services for managing the energy within that section of the distribution grid that wouldn't
1: be provided by a grid-scale battery. Having battery technology centralised for small communities makes a lot of sense, and we'll dive into why shortly. But what does this practically look like? What are the models at play for how these could work? When it comes to
0: models, I think it's early days. We're just seeing, you know, it's actually worked out really well because we have a bunch of trials being rolled out this year and they all have different models. And so we're going to have a really great opportunity to see how the different types of models work and um, how they produce benefits and who receives those benefits. So some of the examples are, uh, so Ausgrid has three of these community batteries in Sydney. They are a network operator, so they own the batteries and they're doing an off-market settlement with customers to pay them for the solar, excess solar generation that they're producing and putting into the battery to charge the battery. So that's one model. A quite different model is um, the one by Powercore in, in Victoria. So down on the Mornington Peninsula, they have these pole-top batteries. You might have seen those in the news. So they're, they're smaller, but they, they're pretty cool because they sit on the top of a, of a normal electricity pole. So you wouldn't even notice that they're there. And they are just primarily providing network Support services, so helping balance those voltage, you know, the voltage management within that section of the network. So it's quite a different sort of
1: operating model. The project Marnie just mentioned is run by United Energy, which has received $4 million in funding from ARENA to trial pole mounted batteries. Another example is the one that is being
0: rolled out by Yarra Energy Foundation. In Melbourne, so they they are a non profit. They've partnered with a local network operator, and they they have a very community oriented focus where the community can actually co invest in the project, which is pretty cool. And then it's providing you know a, a battery, basically a shared battery for a for some of the customers in that community, the people who sign up to be part of the scheme.
1: How much of your research? explores the community experience of these proposed projects or, you know, rolled out projects? How much of the research is on the, you know, you as a household, as an example, experience of this versus just the feasibility of it or the the actual kind of implementation of it or the running of it?
0: Yeah. So that's a great question. I think I'll talk about my own personal research path in this, my story. When I started working on this project, I was really focused on the technical and the economic. Over time and working with, um, in partnership with my colleague, Hedda Ranson-Cooper, who's a social researcher, I've just been astounded by the amount of interest in this kind of technology from community, from everyday householders. And I think what I've you know, it's taken me quite a long time to realise is that this technology really aligns with what people want out of the energy transition. So, you know, obviously the, you know, the obvious things as in it's, it's hopefully delivers cleaner, cheaper, more fair electricity, but there are really um, some less obvious aspects of this technology that I think really resonate with people. So that is this sort of community level engagement in the energy transition that I think really gives people what they're after in terms of wanting to have a say over how the energy transition is evolving, wanting to be involved, wanting to you know, support it themselves, but wanting to see the benefits flow fairly, making sure that we're moving to decarbonise as quickly as possible. I mean, these are all values that are super important to people in addition to having cheaper
1: bills. You've mentioned the word fairness a few times. I'd love to, to get your take on what that means in this instance. And I know that most questions I ask you, the, the answer might start with, it will mean different things for different models. So I very much understand that. But at macro broad level, what does fairness look like in this scenario?
0: Yeah, that, that's actually a really interesting question because I think there are multiple parts to it. So maybe I'll take it step by step. I mean, one one important thing is that we have to make sure people aren't left out of the energy transition. So at the moment with household batteries, there's sort of an option for people who have their own house, who can afford the upfront cost, who have time to do you know, also the willingness to do the installation, maintenance and so on. So there are just a lot of people being left out of that kind of household-level storage. So one aspect is just making sure people have have a choice, you know, around how they're involved in the energy transition. So that's that's over and above, in my mind, the cost savings. So another aspect of fairness is that you know people don't get ripped off. some people make money, and you know, like if you have your own battery, you can follow you know your your tariff and make sure you really do pretty well out of having a battery if you're if you're pretty savvy about it. But we want to make sure that doesn't just advantage a subsection of the community. So it has to be something that's open and available to everyone. And I think like, just a final point on fairness is just we have to give people the opportunity to, to have a, a say in how our energy transition rolls out. So that, that should be, you know, we need to listen to what consumers want, and I think that's also an important aspect of fairness.
1: A ANU received support from ARENA of $498,000, to help with Marnie's project exploring the deployment of community batteries. And if we end up having batteries that have some level of neighbourhood ownership, it could help the grid in a few key ways. As we've covered many times on this show, Australia is the world leader in the adoption of rooftop solar. And for many, the purchase of solar was encouraged by generous feed-in tariffs. Buying solar is one of the few opportunities we have as consumers to influence the makeup of our grid. But with so much renewable energy hitting our grid, those feed-in tariffs are slowly disappearing. You could install a home battery to soak up the energy and use it to power your home, but home batteries are still very expensive. So could a neighbourhood battery help us deal with the excess energy generated by solar and maintain the incentive for people to be part of the energy conversation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly, well, at least part of the reason why customers, energy users are so interested in this kind of technology because they do feel like they've been left out and they do want to have a say in in the future energy transition. So yeah, I think to answer your question, I do think the energy industry is still not listening to what customers want. And, you know, as a result of that, people are just wanting to, to lead the way and customers are leading the way. That's why we have the highest rate of uh, rooftop solar in the world um, so it's it's actually pretty exciting. I just feel so proud of Australia for for being in this position, but we have to make sure now that we do listen to what what consumers want and and build the, the energy system that they want for the future.
1: So the emergence of neighborhood batteries means you don't have to front up the you know over 10 grand in most cases for your battery if not up to. 17, 18 grand in some instances. And you're going to start to get some of the benefits. So, in this scenario, if I'm a solar household, could you walk through what that benefit would be with a neighborhood battery?
0: Yeah. So, um, one example is if either the battery owner was the retailer or a retailer was partnered in the battery project, then the retailer could offer the household a little bit extra money for their feed in excess solar energy. So that would be rewarding them for solar energy put into the grid and used locally in the neighbourhood. Or alternatively, you could get a bit of a discount on the energy that you use, say, in the evening. So you put your solar in during the day and then you get slightly cheaper energy in the evening. So there I mean, there are a whole bunch of ways that you can kind of package this up to, to give some benefit back to the consumer. Because that solar energy that the consumer is generating, it is very, very useful and valuable, but only at the right time, right? And in, if it can provide a service that's useful. So if you have a neighbourhood battery there, then it is useful. You can store it and then use it in the, in the evening for that neighbourhood. Yeah, so the, the way these tariffs are evolving over time, it's just adjusting so that we actually pay for when the energy is actually going to be useful, And the neighbourhood battery really provides the flexibility to to be able to reward that excess solar energy.
1: What are the hurdles that remain really to see, you know, a widespread rollout of neighbourhood batteries?
0: Yeah, great question. So there are a few hurdles. Probably the main one that we are thinking carefully about at the moment is around the network tariff that you pay for energy that goes into the battery and energy that goes out of the battery. So we talked earlier about how the batteries are typically sitting in front of the meter. So any energy that's transported on our electricity grid that's in front of the meter has to pay a network tariff. So we pay that when we use electricity in our homes. We pay for that
1: a lot of people don't realise. No. Something yes. that I find so surprising is that yeah. you actually, every time you are billed from your electricity retailer, there is a network tariff included in that, but many people have no idea that there's a part of it, right?
0: I would not have had any idea before yeah. <laughs>
1: working in this area. <laughs> Nor
0: I, And <laughs> even now, I still find it pretty confusing when I look at the bill. And I recently called up my retailer to try to understand the bill you know really in depth, but anyway. So yes, you're right, not many people know about this network tariff. So the issue is that when you have a neighborhood battery, you're being charged this tariff twice. So you're being charged when the battery's charging and also paying for the the energy to be transported when it's discharging. So that just makes the model not work financially. So that's not good, but the solution is that we just need to adjust those network tariffs for the batteries. It's uh, something where you have to tread carefully because you you can't have a tariff that um, unfairly advantages one group of people over another. So you have to make sure it's adjusted properly so that it's going back to the fairness question before. So that's fair. So that's that's one issue. There are a couple of other issues Um What we see as a potential um, risk of this technology is that householders are likely to be sceptical of battery models that don't clearly demonstrate that they'll genuinely benefit the local community. So we have to be careful as we roll these out that we don't just put in, you know, like greenwashing, say this is a community battery and then it actually doesn't advantage the community in any way. Like people people won't buy it and you know to be honest trust levels are already pretty low and uh, I think that's that's something a lot of our research is focused on how we can make sure we we avoid you know we mitigate that risk moving forward. Another challenge I think is that you know we've talked about how you know all kinds of batteries including neighborhood scale batteries provide these different services so it might be, you know, household storage. It might be a network support service. It might be selling energy into the market to make money for the battery owner. It might be also, you know, providing resilience backup for communities in bushfire-prone areas. One issue is how do you balance um, these different, you know, potential benefits of the battery because sometimes they're at odds with each other. So you can imagine a situation where, you know somebody's deciding well do we want to make more money from the battery by selling more energy into the market or do we want to keep more energy in the battery as a backup in case of bushfire or do we want to make sure we're minimizing carbon emissions as much as possible with the battery which is often at odds with making money on the energy market. So it's how do you balance these different, you know, potential benefit streams for the battery? And I I think for us that's a really interesting question to be
1: mindful of moving forward. As Australia moves toward a renewable energy grid, we need to make some changes. And as Marnie says, this is one of the biggest challenges we face. So what role could community batteries play in this transition? Moving forward in Australia,
0: we need to hugely increase the amount of energy storage that we have integrated into the grid. So I think the latest AEMO ISP draft said 65 gigawatts of distributed storage, so it's a lot of storage. That is going to be some combination. So just for the battery storage, I mean, there are other types of storage as well, of course, but just for battery storage, it's going to be you know, combination of household storage, electric vehicles, which is like batteries on wheels. And then I think there is an important role for this scale of storage, the neighbourhood batteries, in helping to integrate the huge amount of solar that we are continuing to put onto our rooftops and also in the future managing the, you know, increasing number of electric vehicles that we're going to have. So, both the rooftop solar and the electric vehicles are generally plugged in on the distribution end of the grid, where our houses are, and I see neighbourhood batteries as providing a really important role in managing that increasingly complex energy charging and discharging that's that's going to be taking place on the distribution grid.
1: Thanks to Marnie Shaw for joining us for this episode. Rewired is brought to you by ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, working to support Australia's energy transition. This episode was hosted by me, Kaya Taylor, with production and scripting from the team at Lawson Media. If you've enjoyed the conversation and want to learn more about the transformers working to change our energy grid or the projects that ARENA is funding, you can find out more on our website, arena.gov.au. I'll speak to you again soon.